All right. Well, again, if you've got your booklet, let me direct you to page 10. Page 10. We're going to begin here today, session two. Again, big picture. First session, we talked about mankind as the culmination of creation. We marched through Genesis chapter 1, just making some really uh, cursory comments, observations as to the structure of the chapter, mankind, the climax of creation. We're made in the image of God, but the image of God is most fully expressed through companionship. Uh, And so we will expand that idea in our session here uh, this hour. Genesis chapter 2 will be our focus, mankind as companions in creation. So we're looking at three big ideas, and you see that uh, again in your notes there, page 10. Mankind is companions in creation. We're just going to, I already commented on it briefly last hour, but we'll just uh, revisit the concept of the structure of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That chapter 2 is a flashback scene. We'll explain that in just a minute. Then we'll look at uh, what I call the scenes of mankind's creation. That's where we will look at the creation of man and then the creation of woman, right? Both of them are given a paragraph to describe in Genesis chapter 2 their special creation. And then the climax of the chapter is that third point that we'll look at in this session, the sacredness of the one flesh relationship. That's the climax of Genesis chapter 2. That's really the core of what we're discussing during this, uh, this conference today. So, Again, if you got your Bible, let's read Genesis chapter 2. We'll begin there, and then we'll look at these big three ideas and uh, spend this oh, a little over an hour together uh, looking at these concepts, okay? So if you've got your Bible, Genesis chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, when they were created, and the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the eye or to the sight, good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil." And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pishon, that it is which compasses or surrounds the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and there's bdellium and onyx stone. Verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon, the same is that which compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. The name of the third river, Hittakel. That is it which goes towards the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof you will surely die. And the Lord God said, verse 18, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. 
And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. All right, now, again, I, I, com- I commented on this briefly at, uh, during the last session, but let me briefly describe the structure of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We don't need to take long with this, but the bottom of page 10, and it kind of spills over just the very top of page 11, is just talking about the, the, the structure of these two chapters. And basically what I want you to see is this is a flashback. We're not going to get lost in some of the controversy and some of the secular scholarship and all the stuff that's ultimately in the end uh, not that edifying. Uh, some will argue that this is two creation accounts, right? It's, it's evidence of fusion in the text and tradition and all that. That's garbage. You don't need to you know, learn much about it because it's totally worthless anyways. But if you want to have that conversation, let's talk. But the point of it is the structure of Genesis 1 and 2. This is common in the way that the Hebrew Bible is structured. We have a number of examples of this. I point out that the same thing happens later in Genesis 10 and 11, where it will give in one chapter a scene which gives you the, the big picture idea, like Genesis 1 is a snapshot of all six days of creation. And then it does a flashback in the next chapter. So chapter 2 is a zoom in. It's a flashback. It's going now to chapter, or I'm sorry, chapter 2 is a flashback to the sixth day of creation. And it's going to zoom in and focus more fully on what happened there. Again, we're going to see the same thing Genesis 10, 11, you see ch- chapter 10 is the list of seven nations, right? We call the table of nations. It's the most complete record of ancient genealogy anywhere in all of history is Genesis chapter 10. But then chapter 11 of the book of Genesis is telling you the story of what led to the seven nations, right? It's the Tower of Babel story. So it's out of chronological order, but that's normal, right? For many places in ancient literature, Hebrew Bible is that way. We just sometimes in our modern, linear, you know, Western world thinking, we sometimes think that's odd. But the point is, that's the point of this, this structure. All right? I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that unless you got a question about it. But the point is that God is, he gave us a survey of what he did in the, in the six days. Again, the first few verses, we're not going to spend much time with it, but the first few verses of chapter two is kind of the capstone right, of the week. He gives us the seventh day, God rests on the seventh day. <laughs> And then uh, he gets right to this flashback of the sixth day and the special creation of man and woman and him bringing them together in a special harmony that uh, is, of course, the real point of the, of the chapter. So again, this kind of the, the last uh, dash there, last point on the bottom of page 10 and page 11, I'm just summarizing kind of the scene because we're not going to spend much time with this because we're trying to get to the actual creation of man and woman and, and their the bringing together and their union. But the point of the, of the paragraph from Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, is that 
God designed the earth to be managed by mankind. The earth would not flourish in the way it was intended without the presence and effort of mankind. All right, So he's simply giving you the background information that leads up unto his decision to that uh, was the decision was recorded back in chapter one, right? I didn't make a point of this, but I think uh, Mike asked me about it um, in chapter one, verse twenty-six to twenty-eight. Right? We we reread that passage a couple times when it says in verse twenty-six, God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness." Notice the plural there. I didn't make a big point of it. I did make the point that God exists in triunity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. And that is, of course, we're made in his image. Therefore, we are also made to be relational. But uh, that's probably, there's some debate on that, but uh, that's probably what's going on in chapter 1, verse 26, when it says in the plural, let us make man in our image. It's the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, speaking. And that decision to make mankind was made back in chapter 1. But... The circumstance, right, that kind of led up to it, that's what chapter 2 is recapping briefly about, hey, there's this wonderful world that God has created, but, as it says, there was not yet a man to till the ground, chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us. So, what does God do? Well, he creates man. That's verses 7 and 8, all right? And that's really where I want to get to and focus on, for sake of time, we're really going to look first, verses 7 and 8, the creation of uh, man, and then we'll we'll look at the creation of woman. So again, page eleven of your notes, the scenes of mankind's creation. This is where I'd like to camp out for just a minute. So let's reread briefly verse seven, and let's let's pause here for a few minutes. Again, chapter two, verse seven says, "And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul." Now. Last session, we already talked about that word form, right? We already talked about those Hebrew words that are used, the four primary Hebrew words that are used to describe God's creation, his creative process. But what I want to do now is I want to focus on that word life. And some of you, if you were uh, part of that original Genesis series that I taught several years ago, this uh, may be review for you. But to me, when I first discovered this, this is one of the uh, one of those wow moments for me. It really helped me put together big pieces of my, you know, the, the big picture, if you will, of the Bible. But it tells us in chapter 2 and verse 7 that God forms man of dust of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, I point out first bullet point, top of page 11. Life here in verse 7 is actually the Hebrew word hayah, that's the Hebrew word for life. But this word shows up in the plural, hayim. Now, we're not going to get lost in this, but uh, is this word, perhaps more than any other, that distinguishes humanity from the beasts? Because we already have, as we saw, right, the word it's translated life in chapter 1, uh, is it, and, and sometimes it's translated soul, but it's the word nefesh. Right? We talked about that last time, the idea of conscious life. Life with that can make independent choices, independent movements, right? That's different than plant life. So that term nefesh in Hebrew is true of humanity, but it's also true of the beast. It's also true of the animal kingdom. So what's the difference between man and beast? Well, there's lots of ways to answer that question, but primarily the answer is in, in Genesis 2 is that we have the breath of life. And the Hebrew word there is hayim in the plural. Now, again, this idea of hayah, life in the singular, is applied to fish, fowl, beast. I mentioned this in the second bullet point there. 
Yet the word hayim in the plural is something unique to mankind, which God bestows upon him. So hayah in the singular, life, is given to animals. But life, hayim, in the plural, that is given only to humanity. Now, let me give you a quick Hebrew lesson here for those of you who are not aware. But third bullet point, a Hebrew plural can reference either quantity or quality. All right, you familiar with this? We talk about this, I talk about it from the pulpit every once in a while because it, it's an uh, interesting tidbit to know because it makes a difference in several texts in the scripture. But a uh, quick example, I don't have this in your notes, but a quick example of this, right? The Hebrew word for beast is behemoth, right? You put that in the plural and it's behemoth or behemoth. You ever heard about the behemoth in the book of Job? Yeah. Behemoth, is, is it talking about multiple beasts? No, it's talking about one really, really big beast, probably a dinosaur. That's referenced there in the book of Job. But the point is, it's that same word, the Hebrew word for beast, but it's in the plural, right? So it's not talking about more than one. It's talking about one really big one. Does that make sense? So the Hebrew, in Hebrew language, the plural can be used either way for quantity or quality. Thus, as I say, third bullet point again, thus life in the plural is not only a reference to quantity, that is endless life, because mankind is made to be everlasting. In other words, our, even if we die physically, our existence, our life continues to exist. So that's not only true, life that mankind possesses is not only different in quantity, greater in quantity, but in quality. Or you might be able to call it the ideal life. As we keep reading in the passage, man is not only given this breath of life from God, this special ability to enjoy life at a higher level, qualitatively, quantitatively, we are distinct, superior to the animals in our possession of this life that God gives, but that life was to be sustained in some way, shape, or form, and this is another whole lecture and I'm not going to you know, get lost into it because we have other goals for today. But Genesis 2 verse 9 says that that life is to be sustained by the tree of life. That also, if you're looking at it in the original Hebrew, is the word life in the plural, hayim. So apparently the tree of life was seemingly, it was created to, in some way, shape, or form, sustain the life of mankind perpetually, either by providing sustenance, or some will describe that it's more than just, uh, you know, the fruit or what they would eat and, and receive physical sustenance from, but it may also include fellowship with the divine. Right? In other words, they're walking with God, as they will say in chapter 3. Walking with God in the cool of the day. The tree of life gives access to, yes, this tree, I think, you know, because the New Testament book of Revelation will also talk about this tree existing in uh, the New Jerusalem. I think it's a real tree, but it's also access into the immediate presence of God, which is what they lose because of sin. At the end of chapter 3, they're exiled from the garden and from the presence of God. And so this tree of life is how they continue to sustain and enjoy life, in the plural, hayim, as God intended it, to have access with God, to walk in fellowship with God in the garden of Eden. However, this is lost when we get to chapter 3. This is our next session when we talk about Genesis 3, but this Ideal life that God created mankind to have, it's lost with the entrance of sin. Because when we get to Genesis 3, in fact, if you've got your Bible, let's just read it quick. Genesis 3, after sin enters, 
right? We'll see their sin in verses 1 to 6. But now we see in verse 14 and verse 17, we see this phrase that is now showing that there's a limit to the ideal life. In other words, look at verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall be uh, your... Your, or thus you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 17 says, And unto Adam he said, this is God speaking to Adam, Because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree of which I commanded you, saying, Don't eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, God gave them life. Sin hinders that, limits that. Now there are days to their life. There is a limited lifespan that they now have. But not only a limited lifespan, but, according to verse 17, they will also experience sorrow. So the quantity and quality of life has been reduced because of sin. Does that make sense? All right, so, but in the beginning, chapter 2, God created man, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, ideal life. But what's interesting, you when you take that as the backdrop of God's creation of Adam, that he gave him this hyene, life in the plural, qualitative, quantitative life that animals do not possess. It's interesting when you contrast that then with verse 18 of the chapter, Genesis 2, verse 18. So first, I point out the breath of life that God gives to man, verse 7, but then the dearth in life, verse 18. All right, so again... We read it a moment ago, but it says, The Lord God said, verse 18, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. Now again, if we were to be nerdy and just trace the the structure of the chapter from chapter 1, the first two chapters of Genesis, it's interesting that 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 phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said, that was the primary introductory phrase to each of the days of the creative week. God says this, he he creates that. But what's interesting is so far, every time we've seen that phrase, this is God speaking creation into existence. But here, he does not create in verse 18. Genesis 2.18 is the exception. Rather, he simply acknowledges to himself a special need that Adam has. Again, it's interesting, but in chapter 2, verse 18, what we just read, it parallels Genesis 1.26, where God speaks within the Godhead before acting to create mankind, right? In other words, I just drew your attention to that a moment ago, but in chapter 1, verse 26, it's God saying, let us make man in our image. That's the triune God deliberating, if you will, conferencing, if you will, deciding to make mankind. Well, now notice that's the same thing going on, in a sense, in chapter 2, where the Lord God says it's not good for man to be alone. In other words, notice chapter 2 in the flashback scene, it's setting it up. That we're seeing in chapter 1, the climax of creation was God deciding to make man and woman. But as we get the flashback scene of chapter 2, he adds the further detail. That there was the there was first man made, right? God made man first, Adam was created first. Then there was also a deliberative, you know, effort made within the Godhead as they speak and say, well, let's now make woman because it's not good for man to be alone. So again, there's special attention given 
to the creation of man first and then woman second. Also, you're perhaps familiar with this, but the phrase not good in verse 18, Genesis 2, 18, is not good. This is the only time this phrase is used within the creation narrative. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, and we won't for sake of time, but do you remember in chapter 1, at the end of each of the creative days, it ends with God's you know, recognition, acknowledgement, his stamp of approval, if you will, when he says, and this was good, and this is good, and this is good, and this is good. And then the climax of all six days is in Genesis 1, uh, what verse 31, final verse of the chapter. It says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. In other words, we get to the creation, you know, the week of creation, and God is saying, hey, I made this, and it was good. I made this, it was good. I made this, it was good. But that repetition is then, there's a stark contrast in chapter 2, verse 18, when he says, only time in all the creative week, he says it's not good, namely that Adam was alone. Now, notice this. I think this is fascinating. By the top of page 12, when you think about it, technically, Adam was far from alone. Verses 19 and 20 clearly show that Adam was not only, he wasn't the only nefesh. In other words, there were other creatures. Adam was not technically alone. There were creatures, but the text is saying that there were no creatures like unto Adam. There was no one that was of the same qualitative existence as Adam. In other words, though there were, in the Hebrew, nefesh hayah, right? We saw it in chapter 1. There's foul beasts, creeping things that are all labeled with the Hebrew phrase nefesh hayah. These did not possess the hayim, the breath of life. So Adam was unique above all other creatures. And God wants Adam to realize that. And so what's interesting is, again, I find this really fascinating. But like I said, first, I want you to see the breath of life. God breathes into Adam the breath of life. Man becomes a living soul. The dearth in life. There was an emptiness, however, that Adam experienced. That though he had qualitative, quantitative upgrade, the ideal life that God gave to him that animals did not possess, yet he was alone. There was no one else like Adam that possessed this sort of hyena. So now we see... The point of the chapter is bringing us to this idea that God's, the life in its fullness is companionship. God says, hey, this is how I'm going to remedy the solution or bring the remedy, bring a solution, remedy the problem. Now, what's interesting, I don't know about you, but the first time, you know, I pondered this, it was, it was a little strange to me. But verse 19 and 20 describes right after God reports in verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. Then he determines, I will make him a help that is meet for him or suitable to him. We'll come back to that phrase. But then what God does in verse 19 and 20, it seems like, like a random footnote. Like, God, why are you doing this? But out of the ground, the Lord God, reading verse 19 and 20, says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called the ever-living creature, that was the name thereof. But Adam gives names to all the cattle, fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. Again, page 12 of your notes, I put this under the title, the subtitle, The Search. God both forms 
right? That's a word we've previously seen back in chapter 2, verse 7. In verse 19, it uses the same word. He forms and brings all the living creatures before Adam for two implied purposes. First, Adam is to name them. Again, we've already discussed this idea of naming something in chapter 1. It implies authority and ownership. This is one of the means by which Adam is, is obeying God, God's commission to him, and he is expressing his dominion of the earth by naming each of the animals that appears before him. Secondly, however, the text also implies that Adam, or God, was searching these creatures for an Adamic aid, the help that was meant for Adam. Because the text then reports at the end of verse 20 that none was found. I, I don't know about you, but this, like, to me, this is where my imagination goes wild. I'm like, what would that have looked like? Right? For Adam to see all of these creatures, right, march before him, and he says, well, that's an elephant, right? That's uh, whatever, right? Pick your next favorite animal, your tiger, your bears, you know, whatever. And so he's like, but each one of these animals, he names it, he looks at it, he adores it, he says, well, I think that's what it should be called. But at the end of the day, he says, that's not like me. And so how long would this have taken? I don't know, you know, at least a day. Right? I mean, was, we talked about this before in our Genesis series. You know, we, we debated on it, not to break down all the math for you. But the point is, uh, it, he could have done this in a day. Right? So he, he's seeing all the living creatures. He's saying, ah, this is, should be called that, 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 that. But he says, I can't find, I can't find one like unto me. So he's, again, what's the point of this? Well, again, I point this out, next bullet point. The discovery that was made is perhaps less surprising than the fact that Adam needed to discover it. Again, I can't resist here, but this is where we cue up the man jokes, right? How often is this true, ladies? You have to make it sound like it was his idea. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so God is saying, all right, Adam, I could just tell you that you don't have a, you know, somebody that's, that's fit for you, but... How about I let you discover it on your own? How about I walk you through this so that you come to the discovery that you are alone? So apparently God did not want to simply give Adam a helper, but wanted Adam to look for one and then, of course, not find one among the animal kingdom. Again, this has, as I point out, at least two purposes. First, it taught Adam that he was unique above all other nefesh hayal, all other creatures. He was different. And, he, and God wanted Adam to see that he was different. Again, we can get lost in this, and I think it's a very important concept because it's lost in our day that believes in an evolutionary worldview model. <coughs> so much of uh, you know, modern academia is, is anchored to Darwinianism, and it denies that there's a, a distinction between man and beast, and yet the Bible says there is a distinction between man and beast. We didn't come from beasts. We are different than them. And Adam needed to know that. So this was part of the process for Adam to first discover he was unique above all other creatures. He was different. But then, of course, second, it taught Adam that his need had to be met by God. Right? Adam couldn't solve this dilemma. This was a God thing. So again, I love the way one of my old profs, I'm leaning on some of his notes from college. It was one of my undergrad professors, Douglas McLaughlin. Uh, he's one of my favorite profs that, that I enjoyed over the, the years of my academic training, etc. He says this, God was accentuating the emptiness of lording rather than loving. 
the difference between rulership and fellowship. That is profound. Adam could rule the animals, but he could not really fellowship with them because they belong to another circle of creation, which is completely other. Because, in other words, he was lording over creation. Why? Because he was God was bringing them one by one. He was naming them. He was exercising his dominion. He was lording over creation. But lording is different than loving. There's a difference between ruling and fellowshipping. And so, though Adam was exercising dominion, in a sense, here in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, nonetheless, he was, he was recognizing that there's, there's something missing. So what happens next? Well, top of page 13, we now see God builds the woman. Now, the dignity of woman is seen in at least three ways in this text. We'll just highlight them, and then we'll, we'll work through them. First, her construction by God. Right? We have a special act of God, just, and, it, and it parallels, we'll, we'll see it in a minute, but it parallels the man. Right? God makes forms out of the dust of the ground, uh, body for man, and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. In other words, in this creative act, when God makes man, he gets his hands dirty. Because how has God made everything else up till now? He simply speaks it, and it comes into existence. But now, God gets his hands dirty. He puts his hands in the dirt, if you will, forms a body, special care, right? Again, that word form, right? The idea is he's shaping it, he's planning it, the finger work of God, if you will. He designed our bodies, and then he breathes into it the breath of life. Man now becomes a living soul. Well, that sort of unique formation of man that we saw back in verse 7 is, again, nearly surpassed by this passage, the unique formation of woman. And again, the concept is that this unique formation echoes the idea that woman, her uniqueness is as great as Adam's. These are two unique creatures, both made in the image of God, but we are unique in our creation. So first, the dignity of woman is seen in, in her construction by God, her completion of mankind, that man, man is not complete without the woman, and vice versa. But also then, the text highlights the, the dignity of woman by her celebration by Adam. So when God makes the woman and then brings her, to, uh, excuse me, brings her to Adam, then we see this idea of, <clears throat> I need a drink, excuse me. <sighs> what can I say? I'm getting emotional. <laughs> <sighs> The tears are coming, coming to my eyes. Where was I? Okay, so God makes woman, brings her to Adam, and then he's having a celebration. All right, so um, let's walk through one at a time. Construction by God, completion of mankind, celebration by Adam. First of all, notice, and I already kind of read that first bullet point underneath for construction by God. This is verse 21 and 22. Let's reread those verses just so they're fresh. But it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep, verse 21, to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. So again, I already mentioned this, but the unique formation of woman is, is equal to that of the man, and both highlighting the fact that they are unique creations of God. So what happens? First, God puts man to sleep. We're not going to get lost in this, but the word here for sleep is actually a pretty rare Hebrew word. It only occurs seven times in the entire Bible. It always refers to a special supernatural intervention that causes unconsciousness and awareness or indifference. We see 
this same thing in, in when God puts Abraham to sleep, Genesis 15. We see the same sort of thing when, uh, again, I can get lost in the story, but 1 Samuel 26, David is fleeing from King Saul. Saul's trying to kill David. One of the several times he tried to kill David. And yet there's a scene where Saul and his entire camp go to sleep. And, oh, thank you, sir. Appreciate that. And what happens is we see they go to sleep, and, and David is able to sneak through the camp. Do you remember this? And it says he can sneak through the camp. He steals uh, Saul's spear and water bottle. Remember this? To prove that he was in the camp. And then it says he's able to sneak back out. Why? It says because God had caused a deep sleep to fall upon Saul and his men. All right? So the point is, this is, it's a divine intervention where we see God is causing this sleep. Well, again, third bullet point. What do we see? Well, then he takes one of the ribs from Adam. We have the first surgical procedure, if you will. So he takes one of the ribs from Adam in order to use that rib to make woman. Now, again, it's interesting that this word rib, I'm just going to interject here and kind of sideline, or, you know, do a little sidelight here. Because there's a famous quote, most of you have probably heard it or a form of this quote. It actually roots back to Matthew Henry. Uh, who, by the way, is he's uh, sometimes called the last of the Puritans. He wrote a commentary that has become the most widely published commentary in the entire English-speaking world. Matthew, commentary, uh, Matthew Henry commentary is very well known. But he makes this observation that, again, third bullet point up from the bottom, the, the word translated rib is actually an architectural term. If you look at that Hebrew word traced through the Bible, it's in fact used... Uh, this is the only time in the Bible it's translated as rib. Every other occurrence of this word, the word means side. It's often translated side. Most of the off, most often it's translated that way. And it's used in context such as building, uh, like the temple or the side of the Ark of the Covenant, for instance. So that's probably the better way to translate that word. A mere rib is insufficient if Adam later stresses that the woman is, quote, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, end quote. In other words, God probably took more than a mere bone from Adam, but rather, God would have taken flesh, bone, and blood. This observation, again, has led Matthew Henry to come up with this rather famous quote. And I, and I think it's, it's famous for a reason. This is why I reproduce it here for you. If you've not heard it, then here you go. You're welcome. But Matthew Henry is quoted by saying, The woman was taken from man's side, quote, Not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled on by him, but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected by him, from close to his heart to be loved by him, end quote. In other words, that's, again, it's, it's, a, it's a famous quote for a reason, but it's an it's a interesting observation that Matthew Henry is making. And it's, it's, I think it's an observation that's valid, not merely from the observation of the rib or the side, but the, the whole structure of these two chapters, as we've already been building it, at the climax of uh, chapter one, mankind, the climax, the culmination of creation, but then chapter two, we see this unique formation of man paralleled by the unique formation of woman, all of these various factors. But the idea is that man and woman are to be a team uh, in this endeavor that God has given to them to have dominion and rule over the earth. So again, we already talked about in verse 22 that verb to make or to build woman. And the idea is, again, that's where I gave you my illustration from my mom, right? The whole man on-off switch. 
woman, all sorts of bells and whistles, right? They're a little bit more complicated to run. But nonetheless, the idea is that that's, the word actually means to build something complex, to take existing material, but to mix them together, to build something ornate. It's, it's a word that typically refers to artistry, something like that. So again, this is an entrance. It's just another way to underscore the, the significance of what God's doing in building the woman is he decides to use a new word that, has, that he hasn't used so far. He already used the word bara, asha, yatsar. Now he uses a brand new word and applies it only to the woman. So again, it's underscoring her significance. Last bullet point, <clears throat> the implied differences are apparent. Bara is to make material that did not before exist. Asha is to shape material already in existence into a more complex state of existence, but bana is to take different materials and construct a unified whole. Which is so fascinating because as we'll see, then it's he, he takes something from Adam, with it builds woman, but then neither of them are complete until they're brought back together. So that's, again, this idea, the second big idea that I want you to see is her completion of mankind. So we see the nobility or the dignity of woman first seen in her construction by God. It's special, unique construction by God. Second, her completion of mankind. That idea of woman's completion of mankind is seen primarily in the phrase help meet or a help suitable for, depending on your English translation. So again, middle of page 14, see the heading, her completion of mankind. A help meet, or meet just seems means uh, suitable for or corresponding to, is important. God anticipates Adam's special need to have a helper. The word helper means something that corresponds to him. So let's explore this phrase for just a minute. Okay, so let's look at, because it's, it's often taken, and we often, because we, we build it off the old King James, it's been embedded into our, in our vocabulary, our vernacular. We often talk about a help me, help me, help me, we combine it together as one word. Uh, that's t it's technically two different words, help and then meet. Two words. The word help is referring to an aid or an assistant. Again, remember that Adam has a task to perform. So he has a, a job given to him by God, a commission given to him by God. He's made in the image of God, needs to give, he's to have dominion over the earth. So he has a job to do, and, but he needs an assistant, he needs an aid, he needs a help to do this. But his help is going to be meet or suitable for him. Again, this word defines why God considered Adam to be alone. This word neged in Hebrew is the prepositional form of the verb negad. What does that mean? Let me explain it. When this word is used as a preposition, it means to be directly in front of, in a conspicuous location. That is, face-to-face, -face, you could even say. It's the position of one who is in communication. Trace this word through the Bible, and, and I don't put this in your notes, um, just because, again, I, I, I just got to limit how many rabbit trails we go down, because I'm trying to limit this to an hour, and you know, hour and maybe a few extra minutes, right? Because we've got some time before lunch. Maybe we'll go an hour and a half. But, but the idea of to be meet or neged, in a prepositional form, it means to stand in front of. It's often used when a, uh, a soldier comes and stands in front of, of a superior or another soldier and reports, communicates what happened. And they are, or they're working, it's used in those contexts. It's, work, it's used in the context of uh, team building, right? The idea of team units standing face to face, communicating. 
Well, that's the word that is, is translated meet or suitable for or corresponding to. But last point on page 14. What God is saying is that although Adam is not alone, right? Because there's other creatures. Nonetheless, Adam has no aid. He has no helper that corresponds to him. He has no aid which could equally stand face to face with Adam. In other words, there did not yet exist a corresponding counterpart with Adam. He was alone in that sense. Top of page 15. Notice again these intricacies. God wants to make Adam a companion that can stand before him, yet is opposite and corresponding to him. This is why, depending on your English translation, translators will grapple with the best way to translate that word meet or suitable to. Sometimes it's the word compatible, corresponding, or complementing. And the reason is because they're trying to get across this idea, which I put in the next paragraph. Because although they're opposite, man and woman, are they opposite? Yes. Right? Can I, someone give me a big amen, head nod for that one? Yay. We are not the same. In fact, uh, if you want, this is where we could footnote this. Two years ago, uh, the first marriage conference we had, in fact, I think it was three years ago that we did it because we, uh, we couldn't do 2020 because we were trying to do a hotel and no hotel would, you know, you know. Anyone remember 2020? Yeah. That happened, yeah. We're trying to forget 2020, but anyways. But, so I think we skipped it that year. So I think it was back, uh, or maybe it was right in the beginning of 2020, because I think we hosted it in, in February, and then COVID became a thing in March. Yeah. Okay, so it was 2020. So anyways, we were, um, we did a, a book study of His Brain, Her Brain, some of you that were there for that. And it's a, uh, it's a fun book, it's written by a Christian couple. The guy is a brain surgeon. And they, they talk through the, just the differences of, of man and woman on every level, right? Whether it's biological, you know, like they're obviously anatomy, brain chemistry, emotional makeup. I mean, it's really a fun book because, you know, it's, it's a husband-wife team. They're kind of working together to write the book. It's humorous. They've got some great, uh, you know, great material in there. But their big point is that we're not the same. Rather, we're opposite. But in being opposite, we actually correspond and fit together. Or again, as I put there, it's like the, an, an illustration of this would be two puzzle pieces. That if you're trying to see these two puzzle pieces fit together, right, they're actually opposite. They have to be opposite in order to fit together and now make a whole piece. Well, that's the same idea. That's what this word meet or suitable or com compatible or corresponding to or complementing, however you prefer to translate it, that's what the word is getting at is that when examined separately, they are opposite to one another. Yet when put together, they form an entire piece. And so what we'll see is this, this sort of opposite reaction. And I, and I don't want to, again, we, we have those recordings. Uh, you can go check that out. That's you know, the, the marriage conference in 2020. Um, but I, I, one of the illustrations, I don't remember if I used it then or I, if I used it later. But my wife and I, we just laugh about this one because my... You know, we have twins, a boy-girl set of twins, right? So they're born, same time, right? Very similar, they're twins, but one's a boy and one's a girl, so they're very different. And one of the examples that we love to, to point out is that, you know, we had, we still have a rooster, but it's a different rooster. We had a rooster. Remember this story? Some of you heard this story. We had a really mean rooster. The first rooster we had was just like really, really nasty. And he was a big dude. I mean, he, he, he could look our four-year-old right in the eye, you know. And uh, he was terrifying. 
Well, there was this day where, you know, it's just funny because the twins go outside, right? Boy, girl. And this rooster attacks. So twins, right, born at the same time, same parents. Boy, one's a boy, one's a girl. How do they react? Right? Well, Ellie, our girl, she runs. She looks for safety. She screams, right? She signals the alarm. She's trying to tell everybody to run away from the rooster. What does Keith do? He attacks the rooster, right? And I mean, to this day, I mean, I just, I praise my little son Keith. I'm just like, hey man, remember that time? Because he kicks the rooster and like he damaged the voice box. (laughs) And it was great because this, this rooster, for the next like two weeks, every time it tried to crow, it sounded like, you know, a teenager, just, you know, kind of the, the, the puberty, you know, and the, it just popped and crackled, and it was hilarious. Uh, it couldn't quite crow, but, but the point is, it just, it, we just love to go back and tell that story, because the point is, it, it illustrates so beautifully the difference, right, and it's, and it's very similar. My wife and I, same thing, right, when the rooster attacks, what does she do? She grabs the kids. Steps aside, runs, protects. What do I do? Kick the rooster. That's right. <laughs> and so, you know, and I'm going to kill the thing if I can. But you know, but the point is, those are two opposite reactions. But you put them together, what do you have? You have a unified whole. Children are protected, and the rooster's dead, and we're good. Right? So, good. But the point is. And dinner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, it was funny. And the story gets better than that, because when we kick the rooster, like he, he you know, he, you kick him, and then he turns and he tries to fight you, and you kick him again, and he turns and fights you, and you kick him again, and then he takes off running, because he realizes you're bigger, and then he ran, and he, he it's like he just was in this place, and he ran square into a tree, just like, bam! And like, it was, it was hilarious. We, we still tell stories about that rooster. But, anyways, but the point is, you see in this a very clear, you know, that's what this, this, this phrase is getting at. A help beat or suitable or compatible or opposite but yet corresponding. That's what the word is getting at. And so God has made man and woman to be different but to fit together in a very unique way that brings a unified whole. Again, subheading there, helper, page 15. Let's go just a little deeper in this term. The term helper, ezer in Hebrew. You ever heard the term Ebenezer, the stone of help? It's the monument that God uh, you know, had, had Samuel set up after God delivered the nation of Israel, First Samuel chapter 4 and through 7 there. And that term, Ezer, means helper. It's not a demeaning term. Rather, it occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. 15 of those times it refers to God helping man in some way, shape, or form. A couple of examples of that, you look at Deuteronomy 32, or 33, rather, and Psalm 46. But as a helper... Woman provides what is lacking in the man, as Alan Ross puts it, so that they can do together what the man could not do alone. She was to be his helper. In Hebrew Bible, again, it's not a term of subservience, but one indicating that she was his ally. After all, God himself is called this. He is called the helper of humanity. So not only the verb form to help, but also the noun form helper applies to God. In fact, in Exodus 18, verse 4, is an interesting context where this word surfaces. And it's used of God in that passage to describe how he was rescuing Israel. In other words, the woman was created to rescue the man. 
And in this context, it's from loneliness. It was not good for the man to be alone. Rather, God made woman to help him, to rescue him, to complete him. So what happens? Well, again, back to our outline, dignity of woman is seen in her construction by God. Right? We see her completion of mankind, but also her celebration by Adam. Look at verse 23 real quick. So God makes the, the woman, verse, end of verse 22, he says he brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Verse 23 is a praise of the woman from the lips of Adam. Now it's interesting that again, we already talked about this discovery of his need, right? Adam, God put him on the search, verse 19 and 20. He looks at all the different creatures, etc., and he comes to the discovery that he's alone, that he's unique. He doesn't have a help to meet for him. So Adam's discovery of his need is then provided by God. So God's corresponding provision of Adam, then what happens? Brings joy to the heart of Adam. Now what's interesting is, again, uh, Kenneth Matthews in his commentary on, on Genesis points this out. i give you the quote bottom of page 15. He says this, quote, The narration was st has steadily progressed toward this pinnacle, where the man, and it's interesting, this is the first words ever recorded that man speaks. All right, now again, he already named the animals, uh, etc., but that's not recorded in the scripture. The, the actual words, the first time we see man speak in the Bible uh, is, is right here. So it's interesting that God alone has spoken up to this point, for instance, back in verse 18. But in the man's naming of the animals, there was no recorded speech, but with the presentation of the woman. I didn't understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Do this again. No. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> I hope that comes across in the recording. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> Where was I? All right. So, in the man's name of the animals, there was no recorded speech. But with the presentation of the woman, the man exclaims in poetic verse. In other words, Matthews is helpful here by pointing out two observations. First, this is the first time man ever speaks in the Bible. This is the first words ever <laughs> ascribed to Adam and recorded in the, in the scripture. But when these words are recorded, they are recorded in, in poetic verse. We won't get lost in this. Some of your English translations will break this out. Uh, and many of the modern translations will try to do it. But when you read in Hebrew, you can see a difference between uh, what is called poetic verse versus prose. And it's a type of, of writing, but the idea of poetic verse is it's, a, it's, a, it's poetry. That's the point. And many, and many Bibles will break it out, and they'll, they'll try and indent it or italicize it or something like that to show that it's written in poetic verse. But verse 23 is actually written. It's a poetic stanza. And so what's interesting is these are... Adam's first words, and with them, he greets the woman with an exclamation point. He, he's, he's singing to her, if you will. Right? He turns to Romeo, and the poetry comes out. And uh, my old uh, mentor, Chuck Crabtree, used to say, and Lord willing, we'll get him here soon. We're going to uh, try and get him over here for a set of meetings uh, this spring. But, but uh, Ch Chuck Crabtree used to say that this idea, you know, he used to describe how and of course, there is a play on words in the Hebrew, in verse 23, right? It says, hey, there, she's called woman because she was taken for a man. But he would always play off of it in the, with the English words, 
right? That as soon as man sees the woman, first thing out of his mouth is, whoa. <laughs> and then he says, oh, we'll just call her woman, right? <laughs> so that works. But that's the idea, is he's stunned. He, he's, he's captivated by her beauty. He sees the, the, this climactic, again, uh, creation of God that God made to meet his need, to meet the loneliness, uh, the need of his, of his loneliness, to help him to complete his, his dominion mandate. All right, and so this really brings us to our, really the core of our, our focus today. And that's verse 24 and 5. And I want to spend some time just camping on this concept and take, you know, take good notes, make highlights, etc. Because the notes from, uh, where are we, page 16 to page 20, which is the end of this session, these are the notes that primarily I want you to come back to during the breakout session. And the breakout session where we, we, we will separate guys, gals, and we will talk through on a practical level, first making sure we understand what the one flesh relationship is, but then how we practically pursue this in our relationship with our spouse. How do we complete this? How do we pursue this? How do we obey this? Now, when we get to our, our third session after lunch, right? I'm going to try to smell lunch. It's, it's going to be great. <laughs> but in our third session, we're going to come back to Genesis 3, and we're going we're to discover why this is so hard. In other words, the ideal relationship, the one flesh relationship that God designed, is what we're going to talk about the next few minutes, set us up for the breakout session. Uh, but before we even get to that breakout session, our third session together is, is chapter 3, and we're going to talk about why this is so hard. God's given us the ideal of what we should be, but we're not that. Why? Well, because sin has entered creation, and sin has hindered, it's, it's, it's harmed what uh, this, this was intended to, to do. But through redemption, through modeling God, we can, we can redeem that. We can come back to pursuing this sort of one flesh relationship as God designed it. Okay, but if you've got your Bible, reread that text. The last two verses of the chapter. All right, so we have the record. God makes woman, brings her to the man. He, he names her, right, woman, taken out of the man. We see this, the poetic verse, verse 23. But now, verse 24 and 5, is an editorial comment. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked the man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. Now, again, as I put in your notes, page 16, the sacredness of the one flesh relationship, first, is seen in this, that these verses, verse 24 and 5, are an interpretive editorial comment made by Moses, who is the editor-compiler of the book of Genesis. All right, now, again, we get lost in that. That's a whole sidelights, you know, rabbit trail. We're not going to chase down. Moses is the author of the book of Genesis, though he's probably working with first-hand sources. He's editing, compiling the book of Genesis, uh, but he's working with first-hand sources, most likely, which are evidenced by the book of Genesis itself. But here seems to be a pretty clear interpretive comment, where Moses pauses, as I say, he pauses the narrative. He stops telling you the story in order to insert a highly important note on the sacredness of marriage. The term, one flesh, means that just as our bodies are one whole entity and cannot be divided into pieces and still be a whole, so God intended it to be with the marriage relationship. There are no longer two entities, two individuals, but now there is one entity, a married couple. So in this text, we're going to highlight, or this text highlights for us, and we're going to contemplate, the sacredness of marriage 
with three basic observations. This verse is highlighting first the, pri the uh, that marriage prioritizes a new relationship. Right? Leave father and mother, cleave your wife. So marriage prioritizes a new relationship. Number two, it pledges permanence. Right? So the, the leave father and mother, and then cleave to the wife. That I just, again, it pledges <laughs> permanence. And then thirdly, it promises, promises pleasure. So it prioritizes a new relationship, pledges permanence, promises pleasure. All right, let's contemplate this next oh, 25 minutes or so, 30 minutes, and then we'll be done. So again, marriage prioritizes a new relationship. Let's explain that real quick. Again, I go to uh, Kenneth Matthews' commentary. He says this, quote, The significance of the language leave is that marriage involves a new pledge to a spouse in which former familial commitments are superseded. Marriage requires a new priority by the marital partners where obligations to one's spouse supplant a person's parental loyalties, end quote. Now, we could go off of this. I did not include this in your notes, but the word leave, again, interesting word study. Trace that through the Bible. It's, it's a word that, for instance, give me, I'll give you one illustration. Genesis 39 will use this word four times in the same passage to describe how when Joseph was being uh, ambushed by Potiphar's wife, remember that? And she wanted to sleep with Joseph. It says he left his coat in her hands and he fled. Right? The idea is one of abandonment. He just he gets out of there. Well, that's the word that is here used. That when husband and wife come together, they leave father and mother. But then not only do they leave father and mother, so prioritizes new relationship, but it says they are to cleave one to another. Now, that word cleave, again, second bullet point, in marriage, we are glued together. Debak is the Hebrew word. Inseparably bonded. We are to allow nothing or no one to penetrate that bond or break that seal. In other words, marriage is a one-of-a-kind relationship with a one-of-a-kind person. This means that our relationship to others is fundamentally different from our relationship to our spouse, both in degree and kind. In fact, if you look at that word debak in modern Hebrew, it is the word for glue in modern Hebrew. Job chapter 41, for instance, I don't have this in your notes either, but in Job chapter 41, it's describing the Leviathan, right? I, I referenced the, uh, the behemoth earlier in Job. It's probably a description of a dinosaur. Leviathan is very possibly also a dinosaur, but it's uh, the water creature. And in Job 41, it describes... It uses this word to describe the scales on the Leviathan are joined together so tightly it says nothing can go between them. It's waterproof, right? He actually describes the Leviathan's scales as armor that can't be penetrated. And this, and it, this is the word that he uses, is that the, the, the scales of Leviathan are joined together. So it's a pretty graphic, again, powerful word, graphic word picture. So again, bottom of page 16, some marriage partners continue to replace, continue to place greater weight upon ties with parents than with the new partner. This is a recipe for disaster in the marriage and is a perversion of God's original intention of leaving and cleaving, the leave and cleave principle. Again, I, I could get lost in this. Uh, I do a lot of marriage counseling, done a lot of marriage counseling, and I've seen this over and over again where 
many times the marriage relationship is hindered or even sacrificed at times because one or both spouses are struggling to really prioritize their marriage relationship. They feel that they're, in this case, right, the context of Genesis 2 is their familial ties, their parents. They feel more loyal to their mom and dad than their new spouse. Or same thing can reverse, uh, can be done in reverse, where the spouse, one spouse, feels more loyal to the children than to the spouse. This one's very common in, in modern America. Why? Well, because, you know, we, we have, I, I think, I mean, it's important, right, the role of, of mother, father to children. It's a hugely important role. But as a result of that, we often overemphasize it to the point that we actually, maybe not purposefully, de-emphasize the marriage relationship, but we neglect emphasizing the marriage relationship because we're overemphasizing the parental relationship. But here's the deal, right? Your, your parental relationship is designed to change, right? They will grow up and they will move out, hopefully, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they, they will start their own family. But you, you are still joined with your spouse. God says that's the more fundamental relationship. And it, it's so easy. And I get it, right? Because when you have kids, those kids are a lot of work. And because of that work, we tend to focus so much time and energy on those kids. But what happens oftentimes is we then neglect our spouse. We, we no longer are, are focusing there as we should be. And so as a result, that relationship suffers. And sometimes we, it suffers in ways that we don't even realize until it comes out later. But the, the point that, that Moses seems to be inserting here when it comes to uh, you know, this passage, he's saying, guys, this, this is the prioritized relationship. And we need to understand that. And otherwise, we're, we're not going to have a, a properly functioning marriage. So again, I kind of I, I hit that a little bit. Second, that, that well, first bullet point, second paragraph, top, top of page seventeen. Similar problem can develop when the spouse begins to draw closer to a child to meet emotional needs rather than to his or her uh, partner. Emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, financially, and in every other way, the couple is to become one. Even as one part of the body cares for the other parts of the body, right? This is again, this is an analogy that Paul will build. I don't put this in your notes, but Paul will build this analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to talk about the body of Christ. That when one part of the body suffers, it all suffers. Right? That we're to be so intricately united that when one part suffers, we all suffer. When one is blessed, we're all blessed. Right? We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We sing with those who sing. We mourn with those who mourn. Well, that sort of connection, right, as a Elaborate here. The stomach, digesting food for the body. The brain, directing the body for the good of the whole. The hands, working for the sake of the body. We're one unified unit. Our, our, the various parts of our body work together so that we can contribute to the whole. So each partner in the marriage is to care for the other. And this idea of caring for the other is seen in so many different ways. Ephesians is going to elaborate on this. Proverbs 31 is going to elaborate on this. I, I mentioned this briefly in the last bullet point. Each partner is no longer to see money earned as my money, but rather our money. Give the application, again, the, or Ephesians 5, Proverbs 31, give the application of this oneness to the role of husband and wife, respectively. Money, child care, uh, I mean, take your pick. We can insert any sort of different 
component, as I say again in that, the previous bullet point, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, financially. I mean, fill in the blank. In every way, we are to become one, not two separate entities. If we're operating as two separate entities, we're, we're really, we're not living up to the ideal. And we're not being, we're not enjoying the blessing that God intends with that ideal. So first, I want you to recognize, again, marriage prioritizes a new relationship. A second, big point, middle of page 17, marriage pledges permanence. <clears throat> the purpose of marriage is to form a family unit. Notice again the use of the terms, man, father, mother, wife, all appearing in verse 24. This unit is the vehicle <laughs> through which mankind will accomplish his mission and maintain his dominion. This is the means by which. Right? God says you are to rule over, have dominion, but he can't do it alone. Man can't. So God makes woman. The two now together form a family unit. This is the vehicle through which they will accomplish their mission, their commission. Elsewhere in the scripture, Malachi chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 2, marriage is first and foremost described as a covenant. This publicly leaving father and mother, covenanting to establish a new familial spiritual unit in marriage are precisely what Moses has in mind when he uses the word leave. Picture of marriage. We see this leaving and cleaving in order to establish a new union not only serves a practical purpose, but also serves a profound picture of one's relationship with God. In other words, let me explain that briefly. Uh, I don't, for sake of time, we, we won't go to that passage, but John, or I have it, we don't have it jotted down, I printed it off for you. But Deuteronomy 30 uh, uses this same leave cleave language to describe how God demanded absolute loyalty of Israel to himself. He says, you forsake other gods, and you cleave to Yahweh as your God. In other words, he uses this same language to describe our spiritual union with God. And that sort of union, that loyalty, that exclusive devotion, is what is to uh, take place in the marriage context. Again, top of page 18, I kind of elaborate on that a little bit. But in fact, the covenant ceremony portrayed in the book of Exodus, and again in Deuteronomy, is a picture of marriage. When God, the covenant meaning when God makes a covenant with Israel. He uses language that is similar to marriage sort of language. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, I don't have this in your notes, but Jeremiah, you can jot it down. Jeremiah 31, 31 actually describes the Mosaic covenant as a marriage where God is a husband to Israel. He calls himself that, Jeremiah 31, 31. And the point is, the Ten Commandments are actually given in the form of vows. That when they are, their, their relation, Israel's relationship to God was to be in this sort of covenant, vow-making, exclusively loyal and devoted sort of relationship. Well, that's the same language used to describe a marriage. Thus, next bullet point, the covenant process is a commitment between two parties based upon vows of faithfulness and terms for happiness. In order for a marriage to exist, both parties must agree to the vows. But in order for a marriage to be in harmony, both parties must be loyal to those vows. So it is in our relationship with God. This is a profoundly helpful concept in my mind. You could go, you know, I, we, I don't give you more specifics, but in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, chapter 20, uh, the entire book of Hosea is given over to this concept of Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh is likened to unfaithfulness in a marriage. And the idea is, again, vows of faithfulness to your spouse is what brings you together, right? There's that commitment, that covenant that is made. But you can still be married, even if you violate one of those vows, 
Are you still married? Yeah. But are you happily married? No. <laughs> Not anymore. Right? In other words, in our relationship with God, it's the same way. If we were to have harmony and fellowship with God, 1 John 1, 7, right? Walk in the light, as see in the light, we have fellowship one with another. If I disobey God, I'm still his child. I'm still in a covenant relationship with God. But am I happily in fellowship with him? No, because I just broke my vows of faithfulness. I broke loyalty with Yahweh, my God. Same thing in a marriage relationship. We can have that marriage relationship established, and it's meant to be permanent. That can be established for those vows of faithfulness, but those vows must be kept in order for the blessing and the harmony that those vows are intended to, to promote. Uh, for that to be enjoyed, that those vows need to be kept. <coughs> and so this idea of the one flesh relationship is seen first, prioritize a new relationship. Again, it, it's it pledges permanence. It's a, it's a leave and cleave. I'm pledging my loyalty to my spouse. And the two become one, not to be torn asunder. But the third idea, which I want to explore for just a few minutes before we, we transition to lunch, is that marriage promises pleasure. Because central to this one flesh relationship is the sexual relationship. We see it in the context. Because he says, their dominion, he's brought man and woman together, why? To become one flesh, why? So they can rule and have dominion over the earth. How? Fill, it, fill the earth. Have offspring. It's clearly referring to the sexual relationship. So as I say in your notes, page 18, there's a mysterious oneness in marriage, which every marriage, married couple should both recognize and protect. Paul will also allude to this in Ephesians 5. One flesh in this context doubtless means sexual oneness which is always reserved only for marriage. So I want to consider three important, important elements to the sexual relationship in marriage. First, sex is procreative. Second, it's unitive. It brings us together. And third, it's celebrative. What do I mean by that? Let's walk through it. First, sex is procreative. This is profound. But it's the, it's the couple's charge to procreate, to give birth, to subdue the earth. I just mentioned that. Just Genesis 1.28. God is creator, life giver. He's, God is also described as love. God is love, 1 John 4. In loving, procreative sex, parents become godlike. We become creative. We become uniquely one flesh with one another, and it produces children. I love the way Alan P. Ross puts it. He says this, quote, humans can produce life, their own spiritual, physical life. If humans are to imitate God, then creating life is a basic part of that task. A man and a woman can produce a living soul. This privilege is a part of their blessing from God, a blessing that includes divine enablement. For believers, childbirth is an act of fellowship, or worship, rather, a sharing in the work of God, the one who created life, end quote. In other words, I, 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 think, I think this is so profound that in this sense, when we procreate, as Alan Ross puts it, we are godlike in the sense that there's a, a mini act of creation taking place. Obviously, he's calling into existence something that did not before exist, right? And of course, I mean, it's not on the same level of creation, but in our modeling of uh, 
living according to God's image God's, and living for God's glory, we can actually produce life. And yet, what is the act that does that? What is the sacred act? Right? I mean, think about it. God could have designed this any way he wanted to design it. But the act that brings us closest to resembling God's creative ability is the act of sex in marriage. It's the way that the Bible underscores and punctuates the fact that the, the sexual union is a sacred union. It's designed by God for that purpose. But it's more than that. Page 19. Sex is unitive. It's not just procreative. The fact that it is through sex that we procreate and mimic God in that way, that he is, he is creative, new life is coming into the world, that in and of itself is profound, but sex is more than that. Top of page 19. Sex is unitive. What does that mean? It deepens our unity through loving intimacy. Sex is one of God's rich gifts for expressing and deepening personal communion and oneness between marriage partners. In other words, sexual union symbolizes the reality of authentic marriage love. In particular, it's radical oneness. Sex is the symbol. Marriage love is the reality. To engage in the former, sex, without the latter, marriage love, is not truly unitive. Instead, it is destructive of true biblical unity. This is so because it creates an environment that insists on privilege without responsibility. It turns participants into users rather than lovers. Lovers, in the true biblical sense of agape, which is radical and sacrificial unself-centeredness. Think about that for just a second. Our society is destroying sex. But how is it destroying sex? Have you studied the history of the sexual revolution? They destroyed sex by separating it from marriage. And they say you can be, you can have privilege without responsibility. You can be a user rather than a lover. And so sex has become so watered down and it's become so... Again, immoral is the biblical term. That as a result, it's, it's lost its sacredness in our eyes. And so many Christians fall prey to this as well. That we don't understand the biblical reality or we don't live according to it. And so we cheapen sex. And because it's all around us. Whether it's ads or pornography or you know extramarital affairs, take your pick. All of these various forms are perverting the purpose that God created sex for. And so as a result, it is a perversion. That's why we call sexual perverts perverts. Right? That's not rocket science. But it's the reality. So that's a huge thing. Is, is so many today want the privilege of sex, the pleasure of sex, without the responsibility that God ties with it. So... Again, next bullet point, as John Stott puts it, I love this. He says, quote, even the inattentive reader will be struck by the three references to flesh. This is flesh out of my flesh, verse 23. It will become one flesh, verse 24. We may be certain that this is deliberate, not accidental. It teaches that heterosexual intercourse in marriage, and notice the bold, is more than a union. It is a kind of reunion. I love that. He goes on to say, it is not a union of alien persons who do not belong 
to one another and cannot appropriately become one flesh. On the contrary, it is the union of two persons who originally were one, were separated from each other in the creation of woman. That is the rib, right? The side taken from man to build woman. It says now in the sexual encounter, the marriage of marriage, they come together again, end quote. That's a great observation. And as I said earlier we, we, in the last session, this is where it's, it's, it's a bit of an ironic reversal because one of the number one verbs in creation in chapter one was God divided, God divided, God divided, God divided. He separated this, separated that. But then he brings man and woman together, and this whole is now made. And it's, as, again, as John Stott puts it, it's, not, it's more than just a union. It's a reunion of sorts. But last, I want to contemplate that how sex is celebrated. What do I mean by that? Well, it goes beyond procreation to celebration. In other words, sex is for more than just giving birth. It is for giving joy to our partner as we give ourselves to one another selflessly, joyfully, again, celebratively. The two passages that make this point most graphically would be Proverbs 5 and Song of Solomon. In fact, not to get too graphic, but in Proverbs chapter 5, it uses a very strong word where it's describing sexual union between man and wife. And this sexual union is described with a word that literally means to be, it's, it's in the old King James, I think it's translated ravished. Uh, it's translated different ways. Sometimes it's translated intoxicated. Uh, it's, it's describing, in fact, the word itself at the root means to swerve, to jerk. It's talking about sexual orgasm. That's what the word is talking about. And he's saying, you are to do this with the wife of your youth. Song of Solomon is an entire book written to celebrate the act of sex in marriage. And yet what's, our, what's so profound is that, read the book of Song of Solomon sometime. It never mentions procreation in there. Yeah. It mentions sex on every page. <laughs> right? <laughs> but it never even mentions procreation. And I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, I, I've heard of a number of stories of, of people who teach that, Christians who hold to that, that, that the only purpose for sex is procreation. Married couples that won't have sex unless they're trying to have kids. And it's, it's I'm like, man, they're missing the boat. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. It's more than just procreation. And uh, it's my favorite indoor sport. So. <laughs> amen. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Bottom of page 19. It is in this way that sex can become unself-centered, a giving instead of a getting, a demonstration of love rather than lust, an expression of agape rather than raw eros. You're familiar with those, right? I didn't really elaborate on this, but you're familiar with the Greek words? The Greek, uh, in this New Testament, not old, but the, the Greek has... Four separate words for love. I'm contrasting two of them here. Agape and eros. Eros is where we get the English word erotic. And it's, it's talking about pure sexual lust. Agape is a word. It's the highest form of love in Greek language and thought. And the New Testament uses that word primarily to describe 
God's love for us. It can be used also of, of our love for one another, but the, uh, the key comp component to agape love is that it's sacrificial. It's selfless rather than selfish. And what we're going to see in the next session is that this is the big problem. Why sex? Why one flesh relationship at every level? Why marriage is so many times under attack and falling apart is because at, at the core, we're selfish. If we were truly selfless, we would have no problem in marriage, in sex, in any of this one flesh relationship. No problems. But the fact that we are selfish, that we're full of shame and insecurities, talking about the next session, that's why it sabotages this relationship. So how do we pursue this one flesh relationship? Let me make some, some practical points which I would love for you to, this will kind of be our, our, some of our uh, focus for the breakout, is to, to try and elaborate on this, to, to think through practically how we are doing this in our marriage. But how do we pursue this one flesh relationship? Right, this ideal relationship that is, is designed by God to bring this sort of oneness in our relationship well, I would just suggest four things. First, stimulate mental companionship. Learn to talk with one another. Like, actually try to find your spouse interesting. You know what I'm saying? Uh, if you're married, then I'm like, hey, at some point you found it interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have gotten this far, I would suspect. But the point is, how many times do we, we just, we, we, we lose mental companionship with our, with our spouse? We just, we quit talking. We quit sharing common interests. We quit just communicating. We're not communicating at the same depth and level that we should be. We talk about the weather. That's great. Get off the weather, right? I mean, talk about something deeper, right? I mean, we, we have superficial communication, but stimulate mental companionship with your spouse. <clears throat> Brew a cup of coffee or tea or whatever you drink. Sit across the table from your spouse and talk, or better yet, snuggle with them and talk. That's okay. But stimulate mental companionship. Second, stimulate emotional companionship. Learn to laugh together. Just have fun. Establish emotional connection with your spouse. Again, remember, think back to your dating years. Right? At some point, you made your spouse laugh. Hopefully. Right? <laughs> Otherwise, they probably weren't that attracted to you. <laughs> but do you remember having fun? Right? Stimulate emotional companionship. Learn to just laugh with one another. And, and ask the question, right? And again, break out, guys, gals. I want you to think through that. Talk through that. Guys, what do you do to just make your wife laugh? How do you have fun together? If you're not laughing together, if you can't remember the last time you laughed together, that's a problem. Let's, let's set up a game plan, right? on how you can establish and stimulate this sort of emotional companionship. Number three, stimulate spiritual companionship. You need to worship together, pray together, go to church together, make God the centerpiece of your relationship. There's a, there's a bond that is formed in corporate worship that God designed to be there. And yet, and sadly, I mean, this, this, this is, this is going to be really difficult for people who don't have a, a believing spouse. This can get hard. Why? Well, because most fundamentally, you can't worship together. 
And yet that's, that is so huge, is we need to learn to, to share that common bond in Christ and that common bond, not just in, in salvation, but in sanctification. We're both pursuing Christ. We're worshiping together. And that sort of bond is, is part of this one flesh relationship. Last but not least, stimulate physical companionship. This is learning to make love to your spouse. Making love is different than just having sex. We talked about this, uh, well, both, I think, in our, in our His Brain, Her Brain series, as well as our Song of Solomon series, which we did last year. Um, we, make, we, we make a distinction. And I get some of the, the notes from that, the Larimores, that's the married couple that wrote the book, His Brain, Her Brain. They got, some, they got a really good chapter on this, where they, they describe the difference between sex, having sex, and making love. They're not the same thing. You can have the physical act of sex without genuinely sharing a love connection. And, I mean, that's what rape is, right? Can we just get honest? That's the act of sex, but there's no love there. That is not love making. And so many times, the, the sexual relationship, the, the, the one flesh relationship in marriage degrades to that. Because why? We're not stimulating mental, emotional, spiritual companionship with our, with our spouse. So we come to the marriage bed as strangers. And so the act is merely sex, it's not making love. Whereas sex, making love, we call it making love, why? Because it is to be the climax of love, relationship, fellowship, time together. And it's merely a physical expression of that that then deepens and reinforces the fellowship connection. It's remarkable. That's the way God designed it. Which is why, for instance, just, and then I'll, then I'll get off it, because I know we're winding now, we've got to go to the next session. Uh, well, lunch, and then the next session. <laughs> okay, let me just be clear. But this is why it's so, it's so hard and it's so dangerous to have premarital sex. I've counseled a number of ladies who had sex with a guy that they shouldn't marry. Because this guy is, he's an unbeliever, he's a loser, right? I'm gonna get, I can make a list of all the reasons not to marry And yet they have sex. And when they have premarital sex, there's something that happens. We talked about this a little bit in the His Brain, Her Brain series. There's something that happens at the chemical, biological, brain, heart, soul level. There's a connection being formed. Right? You have all these oxytocin release and all of that. There's a bond being made. And more often than not, when I talk to people who are in a terrible marriage, and more often than not, it's, you know, they're, they're married to an unbeliever, and I say, well, why did you get married to them in the first place? More often than not, well, we had sex. Maybe we got pregnant. Felt obligated. We just figured we should get married. And that sort of connection that they have, that's why God says, reserve that for marriage. Don't hijack that and, and divorce that from marriage. Because it, it, will, it will skew things. And it's, it's really profound. I've seen this over and over again in the counseling setting. And it's, 
But again, we need to get back to the ideal. We need to get back to what God says we should be doing so what? We can enjoy God's blessing. It says it back in chapter 1. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. There is blessedness in this one flesh relationship. God has infused it with blessing. But it's hard. Why? Well, that's the next session. Because we're selfish. Sin has entered the human race. As a result, we got issues. And those issues need to be settled. They need to be taken to the cross so that we can overcome those and enjoy the blessedness of marriage. Alright? I'm out of time. Let's close in prayer. We'll get ready for lunch. And then we'll, uh, we'll come back to the next session after lunch. All right, Father, thank you so much for the time this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this second session as we contemplate the sacredness of the one flesh relationship. Lord, how you have designed it, how the world has perverted it. And in so many ways, we as believers, we, we don't understand it or we don't appreciate it. We don't protect it. We don't invest in it the way that we should. We neglect it or we destroy it in various ways. And we reap the consequence Lord, I pray that you would help us, humble us, help us to see your truth, help us to live it, help us to understand, yes, the ideal that we're describing here in chapter 2, but why it's so hard, chapter 3, and then how we can practically overcome it by your grace and for your glory, to enjoy your blessing. Lord, we ask that you would help us, help help the breakout session, the Q&A after dinner, help it to be very helpful for us, to be practical for us, to give us eyes to see these important truths, hearts that are eager to go and try to employ these truths in our lives, in our marriages, with our spouse, that, Lord, we would live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Thank you, Lord, for the food that has been so graciously provided. We pray your blessing upon the the meal to follow, the fellowship that we can enjoy one with another. And as we come back for the third session and contemplate chapter 3, might you equip us in the task, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.